In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light, he came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and through the world was made through him. The world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or husband's will, but born of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. Good morning. 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 How are you? Okay. And also... Well, I'll hold off on Merry Christmas. I get so excited. Hey, if you're in the room and you need a Bible, you didn't bring one this morning, you don't have one, um, go ahead and put your hand in the air and someone will bring you one in just a moment. And then also, if um, you don't have a Bible and you want one, you get to keep that as a free gift from us. Um, Take it home and enjoy it, read it. Um, Otherwise, keep your hand in the air and someone will get you a Bible very soon. Corin, you ready? Let's do this, baby. Hey. Hey, hey, let me set the scene a little bit, huh? The year was, the year was 1989. It was Christmas morning, if you couldn't tell. The perm that my mom insisted would be so cute, and by the way, she's in the room this morning, uh, had now morphed into something likened to that of a character you'd find on the Disney Channel. Here I am, people. All my glory on Christmas morning, a gift to you this holiday season. (laughs) A few years ago, my mom gave us each a video of that morning. There was a camcorder, I imagine, set up somewhere in the room. And so this is a snapshot from the actual video. I just thought these were important for you to see to get a a visual of the Christmas darling before you. Um, And it really is crazy to watch these videos. Um, One, because we sound like squirmy little chipmunks. Have you ever heard yourself as a child? It's confusing, Uh, but apparently you grow and your voice changes, it's weird. But there was also something really special about seeing my brother and my sister and even myself filled with so much joy. Uh, You've probably heard it said a thousand times, particularly this season, that there is nothing sweeter to watch than kids on Christmas morning. Before the imminent argument about who gets to play with what or the crankiness that is sure to follow that napless child, there is extraordinary wonder. Christmas is the season where many of us return to moments like the one you saw on the screen there. Moments that were filled with anticipation and joy and boundless expectation. It's the season where we, even as adults, remember and see with fresh eyes the gift of the world around us. The gift we have in the ones that we love and the homes that we've built and the lives that we get to enjoy. Christmas has this unique way of calling us back, of grounding us, of reminding us for better and for worse of where we come from. And if we're lucky, it reminds us 
of what it feels like to be a child, even if for just a few moments. If you've been joining us this Advent season, you know that we've been looking at the first chapter of John's Gospel. And in it, we've found more than a preface or a simple introduction to Jesus. We've found what scholars call the literary summation of the whole book. You see, in contrast to all the other Gospels, we find John taking the unique form in how he tells us about this coming Messiah. And this summary, while seemingly ordinary in many ways, is really important. Because from it, we see differently than we see in the other Gospels, Jesus' origin story, where he came from. Different from Matthew, Mark, and Luke, who emphasize Jesus' sonship through Old Testament prophecies and family lines and even the book of Genesis, we find John pointing us to a powerful reality that reorients not only how we view and understand who Jesus is, but how we view ourselves as well. So if you would, look with me down at John chapter 1, starting at verse 12. John writes, Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. John picks up here with a holy yet. That's what I'm calling it. And you'll remember, hopefully from last week, that he had just finished saying that there were some who did not recognize Jesus This was his way of saying that there were some, even those who should have known who he was, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, other Jews, his own people, who didn't see Jesus as God's son, as the promised Messiah who had come to rescue the world. Which for a minute sounds a little bit like the sad ending to the story. That is until verse 12, when John swoops in with a yet, or in other transitions, uh, translations, a but, a holy but. You won't forget that. Now, just when we think, I I know Felix, thank you. Just when we think the story is over, we find ourselves with a little hope. This but is what scholar John Phillips calls the hinge, the door he says that opens to and emphasizes an even greater truth. And so John goes on to tell us what that is. He says, but to all who did receive him, which simply means to all who believed that he was who he said he was, to those who believed that he was the Messiah, to them, John writes, He gave them the right to become children of God. Now, if you've been around the church even for just a little bit, um, this is probably language you're familiar with, children of God, family of God. But before we move on, just so we can really get what John is saying here, everything he's got for us, I wanna take a quick second and unpack this a little bit more. First, I want you to notice the phrase, he gave them the right. This can be better translated, he gave them the power to become children of God. Power, power to become children. What does that mean and why did he use that language? Power here signifies authority and ability. And it's John's way of saying that there is more to this children thing than you think. For most of us, when we think children of God, we generally think of it as a domesticated, docile, kind of familial position where we come under Jesus' authority and carry his name but not really his nature. John, in using this language, is emphasizing for us the reality of what it means for those who will believe in Jesus. He gave the power is a statement about our new authority, the authority given to those who believe. And this small statement tells us that something has shifted, not just in title, but in position. The statement means that we have a legitimate claim to be God's children. But what does that mean? children of God or God's children. 
This language is used all throughout the New Testament and it's used here is meant to paint a picture for us of what it means when we say yes to Jesus. It's meant to evoke within us rumblings of a new story, one that starts at the very beginning. The term children of God is not simply meant to endear us or to draw us in. It's meant to draw our minds to this idea of rebirth or being born again. In other words, becoming like children, new to the world, free from the effects of brokenness in the world around us, innocent in heart and spirit, full of faith, and folded into a new family, becoming something that we were not before. Children of God means that we have a new origin story, one that's meant to mark our lives, not just with new privileges or preferences or desires, but with power. Now John goes on and he tells us more about this. Look at verse 13. He says, children, that's us, not, uh, born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or of a husband's will, but born of God. Now this isn't a shocker to most of us. I think it's fair to say that we would assume that John isn't talking about a biological journey, at least we hope not. Um, so what does he mean? John tells us that becoming like children is not something that comes from human decision or the will of someone, but says it comes from God. And it's here from this line in our text that John is wanting us to understand this idea of becoming children, of rebirth from God's perspective. And you'll notice that he lists out all that it isn't to emphasize what it is. Look at what he says first. It's not of natural descent or of blood. And so we're clear this rules out any belief that centers around the privilege of where one comes from. He's saying it doesn't matter who your parents are, who your grandparents were, or how much influence your family has had or has, or what country you were born in, or what someone in your family has done, for better or for worse. Becoming children of God doesn't happen this way. Next, he says it's not of human decision, which means it's not based on a human desire or intellectual reasoning. No amount of wishful thinking can make someone a child of God. No amount of willing oneself or convincing oneself can make one God's child. And he goes on still. It's not of the husband's will. What? Okay. Where's the husband? Where do you find those to get that information? I won't use that at the six. <laughs> now, <laughs> let's not freak out. I thought that was going to be funnier, and it wasn't. Uh, it was bad. <laughs> okay. Uh, this line simply is his way of saying that it's not based on human methods, not by living within some moral confine or of the culture or performing religious duties. There's no amount of earnestness or perfection that can impart new life to us. And so finally, he draws it back to what's most important, and he says, those who are children of God must be born of God. Back to his big idea, children of God who are made children by God alone. Made children by believing like a child that he is and was. That, that he is God's word. His, he's the logos that we've been talking about. He's the message of true hope and salvation to the world. Now there's one more thing that I think is really important for us that I don't want us to miss before we move on to what all of this means for us. I promise we're gonna get there. And it's found right at the center of both of these verses. Central to all that John is getting at in our text is an underlying and slightly subtle narrative that is pointing back to the beginning of the chapter. And it's meant to be a current of sorts that pulls you into the reality of what John is saying about Jesus. 
about what's on offer in following him. John's gospel is one that points us from line one to Jesus' origin story. John tells us that Jesus came from heaven, that though he put on flesh, he was also before the beginning, that he is in fact God. And while we could read that and think, ah, lovely, what a fun fact to share at my Christmas party, I cannot wait, there is, greater, there is a greater plan at play here. With this context in mind, the meaning of verses 12 and 13 actually shift for us. They carry now a gravitas that emphasizes the meaning of what's actually on offer to the world. When we become children of God, we receive not just his name, but his nature. Our origin then changes, which means that our entire nature and future becomes a heavenly one. Are you with me? If we become God's kids, then just as we carry the things of our parents, we will carry his power. We will carry his eternal transcendent life within us, the right to his kingdom. We receive positional authority as well as access to his world and in it, we don't just function as bystanders who champion him along, we now become participants. Family members, sons and daughters who bring heavenly realities to earth. We carry heaven in us. And that means we're no longer polite about what we access. You know those people who just go into your kitchen and grab a snack? That's who we are. Go to the kitchen and get a snack if you're hungry. I don't have to feed it to you. This is the kind of audacity that Jesus is speaking to, or John is speaking to here. Children who are wild and free about what's theirs. And this is the invitation. Now the question we're left with is how does this happen? How does this work? How can believing in him bring a nature like this, a heavenly nature. Because I know that there are some in the room who would say, you don't know what I've done. You don't really know the depth of darkness in me. It can't be that easy just to be a son or a daughter. In Romans chapter eight, verses 15 to 17, we're told about how this can happen. Paul wrote, the spirit you receive does not make you slaves. And some of you need to receive that this morning so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received at salvation brought about your adoption to sonship or daughtership. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, okay, there's three of you. Felix is definitely a co-heir with Christ. Come on now, we're co-heirs with? Yes, yeah, it. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Now this text is loaded with huge theological realities that Tyler's gonna exegete for you at some other point in time. But here's what I want us to see. Paul tells us that when we say yes to Jesus, when we become children of God, we receive God's spirit in us, mysteriously and miraculously. It's poured out, Romans says, into us. And then that spirit bears witness that we are God's children through, Paul says, adoption. The spirit of God mysteriously is put inside of us, his spirit, and then he testifies and says, you are my child. It's that small nudge, that weird, warm feeling where you're like, he's like, I've got you. You are mine. 
Now, I know that adoption is a term that many of us are familiar with, particularly in this church, which I love. And while we all know it comes with honest realities, it is never a measure of lesser love. In fact, it is quite the opposite. Adoption is an act of radical love, deep love, transcendent, folding in kind of love. And that's what Paul is talking about here. He's saying that adoption is no less binding or is any way limited. He's using language that shows us when we become children of God, it is through our invitation and choice. And by it, we are fully and completely changed. In adoption, rights are given and names and natures are changed through one single act. And from that, destinies are reoriented and futures secured through an unbreakable love and commitment. That's what John is talking about, Paul is talking about here. It is what I believe to be an act of recreation, taking the beauty and design of what is and recreating all that has been lost through sin. Recreation is a reorienting of our entire being back to how it was always supposed to be. Becoming children of God through adoption is like what what Tyler and Hakeem mentioned over the last few weeks, the creator recreating. And what he recreates is you and me. What we were not part of before, we are now, and that changes everything. Now this position, this gift of adoption, invites each of us to not only receive the title child, but to also become like one. And that is a harder thing to do than most of us, I think, would be willing to admit. Often when we think about being like children, we think about childish behavior. Behavior that demands correction or temperance, or even sometimes discipline. Think a little rowdy, a little silly, a little sloppy, a little loud. But what we see here all throughout the life of Jesus, as well as the epistles, is an invitation to something even the most scholarly among us miss. The invitation to be like a child is the pathway not only in the church to something called salvation, but it is, as we understand it, an invitation to life as it was meant to be. So we have to talk about what this means because this is our pathway to the abundant life that was promised to us. Do you feel good about that? Can we talk about it? Let's talk. Now, if you've been around children at all in your life, or if by chance you remember what it was like to be a child, then you know that they are a a rare breed of, of people. Children have this way of caring very little about what other people think. I don't know if you've noticed, parents. They often let their minds wander to what matters most to them in the moment. They rarely shy away from saying what they mean. They're definitely not inhibited in expressing their feelings and all the emotions that may come with it. They rarely hold grudges, thankfully. They exude blind optimism. They can be wonderfully decisive, no vegetables, only chicken nuggets. And they are constantly learning and looking for new experiences. They are endlessly creative and they never think in terms of limits. A child's nature is malleable and free. And this, all of it, is the way we were called to live. Unfortunately, though, even though many of us would say, Bethany, that sounds great, we have, in the language of Toodles from the 1991 classic film Hook, forgotten how to fly. For many, our sense of wonder and curiosity and humility and trust have been forced out by the demand to grow up, 
to see life as it really is. Even if we wanted to live differently, we're not sure that we could. Some of us even feel that acutely this holiday season, and that's not unreasonable. The truth is, the older we get, the more we see and come to know the harsh realities and brokenness of our world. And reconciling that to kingdom childlikeness is not an easy task. Pain and loss, whether ours or someone else's, is disorienting. They shake up our equilibrium and they force us to kind of reset or to tweak our vision of the world. Reality, as the world names it, centers on around holding on to the tossing waves of brokenness, or another way to say that, revolves around what we call control. Reality in growing up means taking control of your life, doing what you can to insulate, to protect, and to provide, to create safety where you can and to keep out fantasy and mystery because they are not sure-proof. We live in a real world And even this holiday season, I know that many of you are experiencing the demands of a grown-up reality. Many of you are working longer hours to ensure those bills get paid and those presents get put under the tree. Many of you are already bracing yourself for that holiday family impact, the time where you will play peacemaker or referee, and yet you know that that's not going to solve any real issues that are happening at the table. Some are avoiding naming the depth of confusion and misunderstanding between you and your spouse, and you're holding it together because you have to. There's no time to be childlike, to be like children. The invitation of Jesus can sound so counterproductive or even counterintuitive to where we're at, so at odds with our reality. Becoming like children sounds great in theory, but not when we have to get it done. The invitation to kingdom life we know is good. We know it's good here. But Jesus, I'm in the real world. I can't afford to live like I'm not. This struggle is not new to the Jesus journey. It's not a 21st century thing. It's not an iPhone thing or a computer thing or an internet thing. For those of us who have believed um, on Jesus, the tension we live in is real. And it's what we call the now and the not yet. And it is our pathway forward. And that's not really gonna change until Jesus comes again, and may it be soon. But despite our great tension, we have been given what John calls, or what I'm calling, what John has said, the holy but. And that but shines even more boldly in the holiday season. But to all who received him, we have been given the power to become children of God. Power is important here. It means something. It means that we're not bound to the reality we find ourselves in, but through his invitation can actually experience more. And don't you want more? Do you want more? Okay. I mean, we want more than just an invitation to change our behavior or to view ourselves a certain way. We want an invitation to see a greater reality at work in our world. John's word to us here tells us that we have the power to name our present reality with all its pain and complexities and to also see a greater one, to see as a child sees for the first time, a new world, a better world, and a truer reality. The greatest deception of the enemy is that he's told you this is reality. 
the brokenness and the falling apart of the world and of your life, that this is it, this is the destiny. Jesus' reality is even greater, more powerful, and one day this reality will be swallowed up in the glory that is Jesus himself. And we look forward to that day. Becoming children of God is not just living lives of maintenance, but of child-likeness that dares to live beyond what we can see into a holy reality with a holy imagination. Kingdom life is not less a reality than the the day-to-day grind that you find yourself in. It's just a matter of how you're seeing it and through which eyes you're willing to view it. Becoming like children is an invitation to look at the world like a child. Think Christmas morning to allow the salvation you experience through Jesus to bring the kingdom world that we exist in, that we've been given as a gift from God into greater focus. It's like we got a new set of eyes, baby. We can see things differently. Children of God is a positional move filled with power. And here's the good news. You don't have to earn it or reach for it. You simply have to receive it, to recognize it and to live into it, receive. This is the key to be like a child and receive that which you cannot get for yourself. To receive like a a kid on Christmas morning, expectantly and without shame and with great joy. And then when you do get it, when you do receive what's on offer from Jesus, you cultivate the crap out of it. Because there is always going to be a tension to living into God's reality. So in doing so, we're gonna have to access and lean into the power of God that's been given to us by the Spirit of God. But remember, you were adopted. The Spirit resides in you. You have the power to walk in and to move in a greater reality than what's around you. Now, this also means something else for you. It means for you, and not just you, I guess I'll join in too, and for me. It means that we have to become people who are like children, become people of curiosity and wonder and dependence. I wanna talk about each. Um, Curiosity. Um, Curiosity in that we get to, in humility, be curious about the world around us. Curious about the breaking in of God's kingdom. You know, you hear it in conversations with other people, you begin to see light breaking into those dark places downtown. Curiosity would say, what is that light? It would stop and linger long enough to ask God, what's happening? Curiosity about this in-breaking kingdom. Curiosity about what could be in someone's reality. What could God do with the least of these in our city? What could God do with you? What could God do in the work that you're doing? Curiosity about the gifts God has given to you. Curiosity about why God gave me a car. I have a car, which means what, God? What would you want me to do with this car? What could I do with this car? Could I carry meals to people who need it? Could I take little kids of single moms somewhere to the park? Could I drive in my car? Curiosity about the world around you. Curious about why you're here in this building and also in this time and in this place in history, what does God have in mind for us? As a people, as a church, as individuals, curious, God, what could you be up to? I'm curious. Curiosity is the pathway to connection. It's the on-ramp to trust and to seeing the world in a new way. 
And it does demand a little bit of surrender. You gotta lay down your own perspective to get a new one. That's a word for somebody. It has the power, though, to bring more life than we ever hoped to imagine. You cannot access, this, access God's point of view unless you're willing to lay down your own. Curiosity, God, what are you up to? What could you do? How could you bless this community? Curious with God, and there is freedom. There's no limit to what we've been invited into. Next, we become people of wonder. Wonder at its core, it just is about centering um, ourselves around God's delight and what God has made. And it's a call to be alert to the present. You can't wonder, you can wonder, like what could have happened? But you can't wonder and marvel about the past without being right here, right now. Focusing on what's in front of you and what's important. I love wonder because I think it, it repels the false images we create of God. We often think and live in our future or in our past. Have you noticed that? Adults like to do that. We don't like to live here. We think about when we are gonna get lunch later on or when this woman's gonna stop talking. Or we think about that one time on our drive here where I might have said something rude to my spouse. I don't know. Um, or whatever. We think in these two terms that we rarely think about now wondering now what God's up to in this moment, in this time, and in this, in this point in history. I love wonder because it calls us to recognize and name God for who he actually is, not who we hoped he would have been or who we think he was. It calls us to see him and experience him and encounter him in real time. The other ones are false examples of what you've built up in your mind. He is here now with us speaking, moving. Wonder is an invitation to play with our creator, to notice what we might not have seen before and then to join him in viewing the world, not as a done deal, but as an endless possibility of beauty and hope and love. Wonder is what this season is all about. It is Mary who wondered about the baby in her womb, the wise men who wondered at the star that they were following, who and what would they find, the shepherds who wondered, and then they wandered. <laughs> That's what this season is about, wondering. Wondering will keep our eyes open to the reality of life that is coming in full soon. Wonder helps us dream with God about what's possible, stirs up holy imagination and holy faith. Next, finally, we have to become people of dependence. And this is the worst one, Oof, I promise. It's gonna be the biggest pill to swallow, but we'll get there. The primary thing that children are is dependent. And most of you parents in the room would say, amen. <laughs> Becoming people of dependence means that we shift from over-responsibility to a place of trust and reliance on someone other than ourselves. Dependence like a child on a father for his provision and care. Most kids in our church family never think about where their food is coming from. Never think about how they're gonna get home this afternoon. Never think about the clothes they're wearing or the shoes that they're wearing. It's this kind of dependence that leads to an extraordinary freedom. And that's what's on offer here a freedom to experience the letting go of your own responsibilities, sometimes even what you fear most, and trusting God to take care of you. But that can't happen without uh, first a call to humility, which sometimes feels like humiliation. But the good news is when our flesh is humiliated, the Spirit of God is exalted. 
And that's what we're after. To receive this is just a recognition, a posture of humility that says, I can't provide for myself, but you can. Dependence is unveiled trust that leads to a freedom you can only experience through the letting go. Now, I don't want you to hear me say all this and just, you know, hear me say, God will just give you what you need, because again, I think there's more on offer. When I say dependence, it's not just that God will meet your needs, it's that God will be the one who cares for every bit of your being. We'll reach deep into where, into the crevices of your heart, into those places where you have the greatest questions or the greatest aches or the, or the greatest pains or the greatest places of disease. And he will not only provide, but he will revive your life. That's what he's after, that's what he's doing. And I love, I love this uh, portion of dependence because when I think about it, I think about the people in my life who are the most free. The people in my life who are the most free are the people who are most dependent upon the Spirit of God. Um, Tyler is like this. He's kind of like, let's go do it, because God will probably do it. You're like, yes, I follow you into the night. Let's go. You know, like, it's like, yes. I mean, I'm like, yes. I'm scared. You know, like, you go first, and I'll follow and behind with a flashlight. My sister is like this. My mom is like this. There are older people in the faith we know who are like this. They're free because they're dependent on God. They have this faith that holds them up. And so they're willing to risk it all, to wonder, to dream, to go places in their minds and hearts with the Lord and to see what he would do. Dependence is beautiful because it means that we have a security that's not based on our performance or our behavior, but rooted in a parental, unending love. Dependence means we surrender control and leadership of our life to someone else and then we rest, we rest and we enjoy like children. Now central to all of this obviously is trust. It's belief and it's risky and it's gotta be childlike and it's filled with blind faith, so much of it. But that trust is not and will not be without reward. Have you ever noticed that kids have this unique superpower of getting what they want? I mean, some of you are like, not mine, okay. I want a snack. You probably gave them an apple, let's be honest. It may, be not, it may not have been the Dunkaroos. I don't even think they make those anymore. Okay, I don't know what's happening. Did you have a Dunkaroo before? A cookie with the icing? It's not a real snack, but I love it. It's, I don't think they make them anymore. But you gave them something. Kids, when they want something, parents, for the most part, give them what they need. They do. And not in a bratty way, they just give it to them because they love them. And that's the point. It's not, they don't give them something because they're trying to appease them or placate them, but because they really love these little humans. Becoming like a child, experiencing life born of God means living and experiencing a life of love. Love that meets you in your deepest pain and questions. A love that turns on the light after you wake up crying from a bad dream. Love that comes when you fall down or you fall away. Love that comes running towards you even though you ran the other way. Despite our earthly experiences, being a child of God means that you have the attention of a parent who is fierce in love. And in the language of the scriptures, loves to give you good gifts. Being a child means you no longer live from a place of scarcity, but of abundance. Not from control, but freedom. Not from fear, but from great faith. 
Being born of God means more than life with God forever in heaven, though it does. It means life, radical, real, wild, good life here and now. It means, as Henry Nouwen once said, that we experience a knowledge more of the heart than of the mind. That we are born out of love that will, and that we will die into love. That every part of our being is deeply rooted in love and that this love is our true father and mother. From this love, he says, all forms of evil and illness and death lose their final power over us and become painful but hopeful reminders of our true divine childhood. And that's at the heart of this Christmas message today. An invitation to, if you haven't yet, to become like a child and to come fully into the kingdom of God to believe in Jesus and to be adopted into his family, to be given a new nature and to experience life and freedom as you have always hoped it would be. And if you're in the family, the invitation today is to remember that you are God's child. You are God's child. That you are born of God, not of something else, but you are born of God and in that, you are called to live that way. Children for, uh, are the people for whom most of us would assume have no real impact on the kingdom. But as we read it today, they are, in fact, the exact ones Jesus wants to use to make his kingdom known. These words from John call us to challenge the norms, to push against what culture says we should be or what we should expect or how we should feel or how we should lean in to the greater reality of the kingdom of God. Trusting that life, this life that's on offer, is better than the one we could ever dream of. American writer Laura Ingalls Wilder. Okay, I thought there might be some. I didn't know she did anything but House on the Prairie, so what are you going to do? Uh, she said this, Our hearts grow tender with childhood memories and love of kindred, and we are better throughout the year for having, uh, in spirit, become a child again at Christmas time. Becoming a child again at Christmas. I wonder if today there's an invitation for some of us to do just that. To become a child again. So my prayer is that we would see God in our reality here and now. That we'd be willing to surrender our idea, our grown-up realities of what life is supposed to be like. And that we would be able to see with new eyes the world around us and to walk in the power of the spirit of the adoption that you've been brought in through. I hope we can allow God's presence to change our lives and then from there I'm expecting it to very much change the world.